Hello and welcome to Unofficial Partner, the sports business podcast. I'm Richard Gillis. Today sees the launch of Closing the Visibility Gap, an important piece of new research into the commercial future of women's sport in the UK. It's been carried out by the Women's Sports Trust in partnership with the Two Circles Agency. And it suggests that revenue generated by women's sport in the UK is set to grow from £350 million in 2020 to a billion by 2030. And it makes the point that this growth is predicated on the growing media visibility of female athletes and teams. So joining us on the podcast to discuss these findings are Tammy Parler, the Chief Executive and Co-Founder of the Women's Sports Trust, fellow Trust Board member Zara al Kudzi, Head of Commercial Partnership Development at Formula One, and my regular series co-host, sports PR expert Laura Weston. Together we ask, what's going to go right for that billion pound target to be met? The full study can be found on the Women's Sports Trust website and includes bespoke toolkits for all major stakeholders in sport to improve and optimise their promotion and investment in women's sport. If you like the podcast, you'll really like our weekly newsletter, which is read by thousands of people across the global sports business, and it's where we talk about the topics and themes that arise from our podcast conversations. We can send it direct to your inbox every Thursday afternoon. All you've got to do is sign up via unofficialpartner.com, where you'll also find the back catalogue of Unofficial Partner podcasts. My first question, I'm going to start with you, Tammy. And the question is why we're, we're talking here about Two Circles Research in collaboration with the Women's Sports Trust. Why is the data necessary in terms of where we are and all of the conversations that we're about to have about the growth potential of women's sport and the commerciality of it? What's the purpose of this report? Visibility matters. Um, And visibility is at the heart of what we do as an organisation. You know, we're a national charity that emerged out of London 2012 and and it, it was seeing women's sport both physically at the Olympics and the coverage in the media and realising that it had been absent from my life, despite being a sportswoman, that drove the ambition and vision of WST as a charity. So that's tangible proof that visibility could drive action. And as a charity, we're all about pushing the, the industry forward um, promoting uh, athlete role models, pushing forward on, on the media landscape and the commerciality of, of women's sport. And this is an area that, if we get it right, can, can um, produce massive benefit. Um, but I don't think there has been enough um, research into it, enough understanding. You know, when we were looking into doing this research right at the start, the, the, one of the, the, the biggest sort of pushes to do it was that everybody was talking about the fact that elite role models didn't matter. And God, that's so frustrating because, you know, elite role, I feel in my, in my bones that elite role models matter. I, I, totally, I totally get the, I, the, the belief that um, our sort of local role models and, 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 and our families and so forth are extremely important, but so are elite role models. So we wanted to look into that. Is it more than just this gut feeling or actually is there something behind it? And I think the research really does show that there is. Um, and the research is everything that we do as a charity is about trying to get things that actually move the industry forward. So this goes beyond simply describing the problem and actually gives us tangible things that we can do in order to capitalise on the opportunity, this great opportunity that women's sport actually has for us. 
Do you, it's interesting you said that about role models. You mean, do you mean professional sports superstar athletes as role models? Yeah, absolutely. There's, uh, the thing, a number of years ago, less so now, but a number of years ago, it was, um, I've heard so many times that, um, uh, that, 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 yeah, literally the phrase elite role models didn't matter. Um, and, um, but, but the more we see, um, uh, people achieving at the top of their game in, um, out there, actually it inspires us, it inspires, uh, inspires me, it inspires me of self-maturity. Um, so yes, that's what I'm talking about. So I guess my reaction to that, it's interesting that you say that, so just, I hadn't thought about it before. Um, this Girl Can was a hugely successful, which defined the sort of the last few years of, of the conversation around women's sport. And that was all about, it's not role models, it's, it's nudges and it's individual um, normal people in inverted commas. Sure, but it's both. It's both. Yeah. And there's, um, it's, it's saying, if we go down just one road, it's saying that there's only one type of woman. There's only one type of um, person. You know, we'll all be... Personally, I'm 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 inspired by a whole range of people, not just one individual. I wasn't the per- sort of person that had a a, um, a poster of, of of one person that I aspired to be on. You know, it's a whole range of people that sort of inspire me. Um, so, and I was inspired as a sportswoman by the the uh, by those elite role models, and also my mom taking me to my martial arts school. You know, you need both times. So it's yeah. just really about getting the balance uh, and getting more visibility of, um, uh, of, of of women out there too. Richard, can I jump in on that one? Yeah, of course. I, I think, um, you know, that actually is within the research comes out. So, you know, I think this girl can uh, agreed, great campaign, and it was about driving um, women's participation. Um, but so I think the, the research... Uh, this research report shows is that tennis and netball um, are great for sort of moving people that play the sport into following the um, the sports but actually women's sport really indexes lower versus men's sport in converting people that play it into following it and that's that's a commercial opportunity for governing bodies to be able to do that um, but it's also just you know it highlights where and it might just be because opportunity is not there either but there is a big gap if you look at you know, if you look at sort of football, golf, cricket, rugby, um, over 70 percent of men's players then follow those sports. Whereas in the same for women's, yeah, football's probably the highest at 49 percent. But golf, cricket and rugby is less than 30 percent. So I think, um, you know, I've, it's one of those things that I've always heard and thought, oh, you know, it's, it's a bit of a myth of play and then follow. But actually, if you look at the men's sports data, it's not a myth. Um, it exists. And therefore, it's a huge gap in women's sport that we don't do enough to convert people that play it into then following it. And one of the questions that links this, and we'll talk about the report in more detail in a minute, but just while we're on this point, you've got this, again, one story that, that floats around this conversation is that women's role models, you know, the Jess Ennis impact is that actually that's great. There was a huge spike of interest. People you know, she's famous and we think she's brilliant, but then there isn't the infrastructure to support a rush of participation. So, and you mentioned netball, netball is one where you sort of think, actually, I can see now the strides that are being taken that actually, if I've got a daughter who 
sees and is sees the Olympics, and obviously, you know, you've got this quadrennial issue where people get inspired by the Olympics, and then there's they, you know, they drop out and come back in. Um, but netball and those structures are very important, aren't they? And those are those are the it's the boring bit, the sort of the narrative of building a league, building team brands, building something to associate with emotionally, all of that that has to go on. And I guess one, I guess one question to all of you, and Laura, you might be the person to come in on this, is that I wonder if anything has changed. Because when you look at the conversation around women's sport, I, you could be forward into thinking this is, everything's fantastic because we've done, you know, there's media deals being done. There's huge sponsorships being done. There's, all sorts of people talking about private equity investment in women's sport. Everything's fine in the garden, isn't it? <laughs> uh, no, uh, there's still so much more to be done, isn't there? And and I think you know your point about Je- Jess and this is quite interesting because it's it's to me that's almost like what's happened in the uh, in the UK particularly. There's only ever really seems to be what room for one or two elite role models at a time uh and particularly you know we saw that on 2012 I mean I don't know how Jess Ennis did it with all of that you know on her shoulders because it was almost like she was the only one allowed to be you know in the limelight and <laughs> and that's ever been you know that, that kind of if you go back that's kind of what's always happened there's always been one or two people uh you know Fatima Whitbread I don't know <laughs> who it might be but you know there's always people yeah. that were kind of the, the female star at the time and certainly what we've been trying to do you know uh, with the Unlock program particularly is to get more diverse sports women out there because what we need is for, for women and girls and, and society in general to see lots of different types of sports women in lots of different types of sports from lots of different types of backgrounds and really showcase the breadth of women's sport across across the country. Because you know, if we just if we just isolate it to just one 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 sportswoman in one sport, it's it's not really gonna do anything. And so we've got to be really mindful of that now and really push you know, and and it's weird because I think it's a media, site media problem in that they go for the sort of low hanging fruits. Still, you know, they will go for the sportswomen that they know and they trust. And, you know, you see Rebecca Adlington interviewed a lot or, you know, whereas they're not necessarily always looking for the fresh faces that, you know, and, and what we experience with these sportswomen on a weekly basis is that these women have got so much to say and are so fascinating and so interesting. They would genuinely inspire so many different people if they were just given the platform. But at the moment, um, you know, they're still not. I think, Laura, that's a, a great point as far as how interesting female athletes are. They're, you know, through our Unlock programme, the stories that we yeah. We, we hear are just, you know, these are inspiring women who desperately also want to make a difference and want to, to speak out on issues and so forth. I suppose one thing that, that, that frustrates me, and it goes a little bit to your point, um, Richard, about um, the, the, whole, the whole system, is that it's not um, sometimes I think when we're pointing a finger and, and, and you know, so sort of eager to push things forward and so forth, we end, we end up blaming one person or we end up blaming one organisation or one, one sector of the mm. industry. Whereas, you know, the, the, whole, the whole issue of visibility isn't just a media problem. And it isn't just a sports body or rights holder problem. And it isn't just an athlete problem. There's a whole systemic thing that has to shift. And it's, it, there's a whole sort of collaborative effort 
that, that, that has to be tackled in order to move things forward. And I suppose that's a little bit sort of what's so exciting as, as what's happening with the, with the WSL at the moment. You've got a, 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 the, the FA that are pushing it strong with brilliant people behind it. You've got Barclays and other investors, you know, coming in and pushing it. Now you've got the broadcasters involved and it's sort of, it feels like there's there's a whole sort of collaboration system pushing it forward. And that's really what we need. And through the report, we've, we've sort of done toolkits for all those different sectors in a, in a, a sort of desire to, to push all the different levers that need to be pushed in order to move things forward. The Let's go back to the report then. The headline um, is, so according to Two Circles Analysis, the value of women's sport is set to treble over the course of a decade, going from £350 million to a billion pounds by 2030 through higher value broadcast and sponsorship rights and increased attendances. So, um, Zara, what needs to happen? What needs to go right for those numbers to work? So you've gone, you know, from 350 to a billion in 10 years. That's quite, you know, that's a, a jump and everyone would be behind that and hoping it's going to happen. But what actually needs to happen for that, those two numbers to coalesce? Um, great. Thanks, Richard. So I've got the biggest question. I mean, I, I think it's more just building on what Tammy just said. You know, it's not just one thing. You kind of you need the rights, hold, the rights owners and the governing bodies to actually um, build assets that have value and, and recognize their own value within their own um, within their own sports so that then broadcasters um, see something of value to buy and drive the rights freeze up from a broadcast point of view, the WSL being a great um, example of that recently. But also I think the 100 have done a brilliant job of setting out their, um, you know, their mission from the start that everything is equal. So, you know, they, they made a point of saying we want free to wear and pay TV um, and it will be for both. Um, and the way we treat both um, will be the same um, with pay, with the draft, etc. So I, I think actually in a, in a way the 100 is almost a proof of concept for how we're going to get to that billion pounds um, because if they can deliver domestically and and sort of the research goes into this that from a women's sport point of view the international opportunity um, is good you know that there is good awareness there's good engagement from media brands um, but the domestic product is where there's a big gap um, and actually that then also feeds into um, you know frequency of of airtime how often we see these female athletes at the moment it's quite concentrated because it's prioritized on the international piece so I think it's pulling those levers, as Tammy said, because actually if the more um, the perception of value is so important because you need the consistent visibility for brands to want to invest. Um, you need the prize money for it to be you know, the perception of, of what you're looking at being valuable for the broadcasters also to want to be interested. And then it's also how we all price this. So as rights owners, you know, we need to stop um, undervaluing. Um, and underpricing some of the assets that they have. And that's a cultural thing that needs to change. Okay, that is a really good point. And that I find the 100 fascinating. It hasn't started yet. And the level of conversation around it is pretty extraordinary. I'm talking to Tom Harrison next week. So I'll, I'll, it's something I'll talk to him about. But one of the questions, I've got a foot in both camps. I am a cricket traditionalist. So I get I'm in I'm on, I'm on cricket Twitter, which means that you get all of the noise of, you know, the outrage of the home counties, you know, gammon faced men of which i am one uh you know huffing and puffing about out outs and 
batters and whatever. So there's all that stuff going on in the in the sort of noise around it. Actually, at the centre of it, there is some really quite radical stuff going on, I think. And um, there is a, I, I suspect that the other, you know, the noise around it will will fade once at the problem is that we've had a hiatus where they launched it and then nothing's happened. And so there's a vacuum. But when we focus now on the women's side of the hundred, as you say, there is some really strong messages. And that last point you made about premiumizing, if that is even a word, uh, the rights around elite women's sport, you've got, that is an essential bit you know, to go back to the how do you get to 350 to a billion, that has to happen. And I, I completely agree with you. One of the challenges is that still I hear women's events being sort of on teams and football teams and sponsorship stories. They are more at the purpose end of things. They are, this is a good thing to do. And look at me supporting women, aren't I great? Rather than in your day jobs are a Formula One, you don't, you know, this is a extraordinarily capitalist sort of uh, entity and it's all about value, building the value around the entity. Those two things, I think, are sort of at slightly at odds with each other. And obviously, it's great that sponsorship money is coming into women's football, women's netball, women's hockey. But is it coming for the right? Is it coming because it's a premium product that they know commercially is going to make a return or are they doing it for other reasons now we'll just park the sponsorship question for a minute but how do we build higher value into rights in a way is it copying the hundred uh, I mean, it could be. We'll maybe revisit that when we've seen how the hundreds actually been delivered and, and how it goes. But I mean, actually, I think probably to steal something from one of your previous podcasts or most recent ones on the, the football platform, I actually think it's sort of recognising that women's, you know, that there's a real shift to brands in particular, um, one, and not just brands, I think broadcasters too, wanting this more direct to fan, direct to consumer relationship. Um, and for a long time, women's sport has been... Um, I, I guess the argument's always been, well, it doesn't have the awareness platform. It doesn't have the eyeballs. And therefore, that's why I'm not going to invest. Um, and actually, if they can, if you can get the data piece right um, with women's sport and you know who your fans are, then you can drive the funnel up. And I think that's where the value comes, because you can say to someone, we have a direct relationship. And I think the thing that always seems to come out with any, um, and, and particularly saw in with Unlocked, but also the women's sports that I've been involved in is this whole accessibility piece that seems to be one of the biggest points of difference to men's sports, that it feels like there's a, the female athletes are much more accessible. Um, and I think that, you know, one of the dangers might be, does that get lost as women's sports start to bring more money in and becomes more professional? But at the moment, if you can drive the funnel up, that's where the value is. Um, and that's why that's where it will come in. But I think equally, it's one of those bizarre things that actually what you pay for it also drives the value of the premiumness of um mm. and so you know one drives the other anyway mm. i think as well though the, the the athletes will drive it themselves to a certain extent because i think a lot of them have just got frustrated by waiting for people to give them a platform you know for, for their organizations or their brands to give them the platform and they're just doing it themselves now so whether that's creating their own content you know which we're seeing lots of the athletes doing in terms of podcasts or their own 
websites or you know their own journalism or blogs you know that they really are like Megan McLaren's a brilliant example in golf who you know is is, is not hugely well-known female golf or she's not one of the ones that people probably could could name but she's made a really big name for herself by being very very thoughtful and writing these amazing mm. compelling blogs about the state fantastic of writer fantastic writer and I think that that has given her value in a different way and then people are moving towards her and going actually that's really interesting and so I think that we'll see that more and more that the athletes themselves will become more high profile but in the in the way that they want to be and then it's going to be a case of how do that how do then their clubs actually at their clubs or their associations or whoever it might be make the most out of that Um, and in a way I'm kind of happy that that's happening because it's not about you know, the clubs or the brands kind of being in control of their career and positioning them in a certain way, they're going to know themselves, be a brand themselves. And then it's about how, you know, the, the brands amplify that. It's kind of like you see with Marcus Rashford now, Man United don't really know what to do. You know, it's how much of a claim mm. have they got on him uh, and all of this amazing stuff he's doing. You know, it's it's interesting, isn't it? But um, I think that that will start to happen, that the athletes themselves will, will drive that value. I think, Laura, the Rashford point is such a good one because I think in men's sport, you've had the platform for so long and now you're kind of seeing that actually the purpose piece is starting to stick and and brands, clubs, leagues, whatever, like the fact that there is becoming more of a purpose-driven point to men's sport. Um, whereas women's sport, to your point, Richard, has always been purpose-driven and now it's about giving them the platform. So they're kind of almost moving in opposite ways. And I think we mm. saw with, you know, the WNBA uh, have always been um, at the forefront of, of having quite a purposeful message. And last year, you know, that they were no different. But actually then when they ended up doing sort of almost a collaboration with the NBA uh, on sort of, I think, opening day and around draft, et cetera, it drew numbers up because the NBA brought the platform. So I, I think it's that sort of mm. bizarre opposite direction piece at the moment. I think as well the the, um, the interest in women's sport is growing so much. People are trying to figure out how do they get in and how do they make something out of it. That has really changed. And if you just look at the um, um, the delegate list for our for our launch event um, that happened this morning, um, that um, the not only as far as the amount of people that are signed up, but you think it, you know there are so many webinars happening at the moment. But the yeah. take up for the, that event was absolutely phenomenal, both in terms of numbers, um, in terms of seniority, as far as, as far as people attending and also the global interest as well. Mm. And there is the, the interest has, has just skyrocketed. Mm. This leads me to one of the other bits of the report that jumps out. And there's a there's a in terms of the difference between sort of aspiration and execution or strategy and execution and the gap between what people, what organizations are saying and actually what they're doing. And there's a re- I'll read out the bit that jumped out, which is um, less than 30%. Many sports organizations believe they make female athletes more visible than they actually do. Less than 30% of the prominent images on website and social channels of UK NGBs who are who have both male and female competitors feature female athletes, according to the two circles research. Unpick this for me, Laura, what's happening there? Oh, <laughs> it's, 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 you know, it's a really interesting one because, uh, you know, Tammy and I have actually been looking at this for a long time and actually we've had some very useful conversations with different organizations about this. Is it an unconscious bias? Is it just, you know, that th- they're just not used to promoting the women's content. I'm not sure. I think a lot of the time that they're definitely not aware of it. 
you know, I don't, I, I don't think it is conscious to a, to a point when they're going, oh, we're definitely going to put men up rather than women. I think it's just been a, a case of history and they've always done, you know, done that. And, and what we find amazing is that unless you literally put those figures in front of them, they wouldn't recognise it. So, you know, and when you do, then we get this quite astounded and, and a bit like, oh, really? Is that what, you know, and this is not, this is people that you, you know, organisations that you would presume are quite progressed in the in women's sports are still you know quite surprised about the level of of of, uh, of content that they're putting mm-hmm. up in a, an unbiased way. Yeah. And look, we're not we're not we're not uh, we're, we're giving these numbers. It's not about to berate people or or tell them off for not doing it. You know, we've all done. We've all thought we were doing something and found out that possibly we weren't. Or, or, or you know, but having this sort of data, this sort of stuff hasn't been looked at before. And when you start looking at it, you can start understanding why maybe the audience is the way that you are. Because if you're not showing the images, of course you're not promoting it. You know, you've got to sell something if you want to create an audience for it. So actually by having, by uh, unearthing this sort of data, we're actually giving... giving the industry that, that, that what they need in order to understand how to make the change. I just said to build on Tammy's point, you know, I, I think that the whole report is meant to be about empowering people to have conversations internally. And that's why, you know, as Women's Sports Trust, to be able to do that objectively um, and empower those conversations, hence the toolkits at the end, is so important because, you know, to Tammy's point, how many organisations are going to do an audit of their own stuff? If they are, then that suggests they're in the right mindset in the first place. Therefore, they probably don't have a problem. Um, but actually, you know, to be able to call out and show where some of the gaps are. I mean, I think uh, last week, uh, you know, Lauren Winfield, England cricketer, even called out her own county um, for posting a picture of the men's team um, with the Duke of Edinburgh um, and um, and not the women's team. Um, and I think that's, you know, to Laura's point, athletes are also asking these questions themselves now because they recognise it. Completely. And, and it's like if these organizers we're talking about adding value to women's sport and being able to go out and, and ask brands to sponsor them or to ask media to cover them. You've kind of got to get your own house in order first and, and demonstrate you know, that value yourself. Showcase how amazing your women athletes and your women's teams are. If you're not doing that yourself, how can you expect other people to value it? And in terms of, of- I go back to the conversation, Laura, that we had with Maggie Murphy. I keep, mm. I keep, I keep going back to this, the, um, the argument of a point of difference for a women's team. Say, you know, it's most obvious in football where football clubs present an image and it appears that the way in which women's, the women's teams are evolving is to, is to sort of ape and to be, to be versions of the men's team. And, um, is that what we're talking about? Because at the end of this cut, this point, there is another point about specifically to sponsorship, which is about the unbundling of rights um, from a commercial point of view, which goes back to the you know initial question of, of value and how, when you unbundle women's rights, say a shirt sponsorship for a f- big football team, how that unlocks the value, but it also puts a pressure on the the women's game to present a different argument or an argument that is worthy of, you know, standing alone as a sponsorship property? I mean, it also goes to another point, I think, as well in the research about before you can work out how to position your women's team, you need to know who your audience is. And and that data gap is is significant. 
So it and it might be very different. Net, netball's audience is probably very different to maybe you know the Man City women's team. So you need to understand who it is that is engaging in, in your, your women's sport in order to be able to, to market it in, in the most appropriate way. And also to understand whether it's more valuable to be offering one big uh, partnership across Man City, which the women's team, you know, will get some of that for, or whether it is about unbundling, unbundling that and allowing them to have something, you know, separate. I don't know. Um, Zara's more of an expert in that area than me. But, but what struck, struck me from the research was definitely the data gap, you know, which we've talked about before, Richard, in, in women's sport mm. is marked. And, and that for me is like ridiculous because, you know, why don't we understand this yet? You know, because you, 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 you're working in, in the dark if you don't understand who you're actually marketing to. And I'm saying that as a marketeer, obviously. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the unbundling piece, I think in an ideal world, you want some hybrid flexibility. Um, you know, I don't, I don't I think that's the, the best way to approach it because it depends on the brand. You know, some brands just want exposure and therefore they just want the biggest platform and awareness. And yet other brands want to be able to actually you know, have access to talent, tell a better story um, and women's sport might align better for that. So I, I don't think it's a one size fits all. Um, and I think that that's the important thing. Like, you know, when people are sort of wondering, should we split our social media accounts or not? Should we split our rights or not? I think it's more just having the flexibility. But to Laura's point, actually understanding what the women's prop- the women's um, values and assets and purpose is to sell. I think that's the bit that's missing whether you unbundle or not, most of the time from conversations I've heard, um, you know, there are a lot of sports that don't even know what they, how they would sell the offering for their women's, um, the, the women's proposition. You know, I think if you look at cricket coming over with, um, I think the ECB announced that the Indian team are coming over this summer for a tour with the women. Um, you know, India, or in cricket, as we all know, is a huge um, platform and awareness um, piece as much as men's cricket. And it showed that in 2017, when they were in the final, numbers went through the roof. So actually, the proposition for that tour is probably very different to the England versus New Zealand tour. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to appeal to your cricket nature here, Richard, with all my examples. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you're absolutely right. I think we this whole idea of should we should we bundle or should we unbundle and all that. So it's like almost we're looking for this magic bullet, somebody to say, okay, the uh, one, two, three. These are the steps that you need to go for, and it doesn't. The whole the, 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 the markets aren't like that. Sort of certain things become more. You know, we've got to focus on audience, but we've got to focus on professionality. Then we've got to, you know, how to versus it. You know, the, there are different aspects that will will um, get more important and less important as the as we're going along. And and to Laura's point about data, the key thing is to be collecting that data so we know whether actually what we why we're getting what we're delivering and what we need to change in order to improve things. Um, data the data gap is 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 massively inhibiting growth i mean do we know i mean it's a laura the question there you asked about who is watching you know who is the audience here do we know that uh, it, I think from a broadcast perspective, it's a bit easier, although we are we've literally just commissioned some new research to look into that because we we really want to understand more about it um I don't think still they are capturing the data of who is going along to watch physically. Um, and, and that, that has always been a, a challenge. And, you know, it's something that I know when I was working on the WSL, we saw for the first three years, I was like, 
okay, we've only got 200, 300, 1,000 people coming, but who are they and why are they coming? Because I really want to understand that. And I think that's what Maggie was telling us, wasn't she, that she's she's really doing some marked um, stuff around that, trying to, to trying to understand it. So I, I don't know, Zara, you, you, I think you did some great stuff at the um, – the Cricket World Cup, which which kind of at least understood. I love this. This is one of Zara's stories that I really enjoy, by the way, about her coffee story. So I'm going to make you tell it again. But the coffee story about, yeah, I love this story. Go on. Is it that we're building up, we're building this up, aren't we? Zara's I know. Coffee story. This is, this is like a sort of, you know. I mean, so it's on the t- it's on the ticket data. So for for the um the World Cup final alone at Lords, um, which sold out, you know, the the ticket data that we got, um, and actually just sorry, the F and B data from that um that day at Lords was that we sold more coffee than beer um, that day. And it was the first time ever that had happened at Lords. And I think that's just a really good example of where, you know, that should have been something that whether the ICC or ECB could have taken away and taken to a coffee brand as to something that women's cricket offers versus men's cricket. Because I think, you know, one of the conversations had been a kind of, if you look at alcohol partners, oh yeah, but women's, women's cricket doesn't necessarily deliver what we need for that. Okay, great, but it does deliver coffee. Um, and I think it's how you find and, and, you know, use that data. And I think equally on the back of um, that tournament, the data that we had allowed us to know that 45 percent of ticket purchasers for that World Cup were women, but not just women. Sixty five percent of them had never seen cricket or never bought a cricket ticket um, before in the country. So I think it's it's having that. That's why the data is so important. It's not just to be able to actually communicate and speak to them. It's to then be able to make insight led decisions commercially as to what to do moving forward. And I'd hope um, with Beth Barrett Wild at the helm of the women's hundred side. And she worked. Um, I worked alongside her on that um, World Cup tournament. You know, she's she's seen all that data and has access to it and has then hopefully been able to use that um, in her strategy for the women's hundred. Yeah. Well, she's, she's a future guest of the podcast, actually. She's coming. She's agreed to come. We're just sorting that out, aren't we? Yeah. The, the, other, the other thing also, I mean, we talk about the, the data and, and, and who's, who are fans. Do we understand the audience and who are fans? And another thing that, that sort of came out of, of, of this research is, is particip- the participant conversion. So the people who are out there playing the sport, there's been less conversion into make, or making them fans of the sport. There's a great opportunity in women who are playing a particular sport to start following it that we're not capitalising on. Um, but how do we get to the people who are playing in their gardens and, and are, are in the parks doing things? That's a, an, a another sort of data gap that we need to... Yeah, uh, I think it's a, it's a, you know, and the focus, obviously, of this conversation is on women's sport but that is a data gap in sport generally people you know i think i i always quite well quite often ask people who work for rights holders do you know who your fans are and they answer quite in at length but the answer is always no and (laughs) or they you know or they you know they're guessing essentially a lot of the time we're still in that that gap between market research and then the aspiration of you know well spotify and amazon know who they're um customers are why can't sport and that's a it's easy to say that but actually it's an enormous cultural and technical sort of jump to get to that stage Mm -hmm. and i don't think it you know and and the 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 question to laura about you know do women do do we know who's watching women's sport is in some ways an unfair one because i know that actually it's it's going to be really hard to answer that question Mm. over you know i don't know zara do people know do you do formula one you know, do they know who's watching? So you could, it's like you can read my mind. I was like, please don't ask me, Richard. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, 
no, I mean, yes, yes and no, to your point, we, we do. And I think I come back to the, the podcast you had on football as a platform, because um, I think it was so, so well summarised the fact that, you know, we have these big numbers and we can talk to having more than 500 million fans. But actually, when you start to sort of dig a little deeper, we know Netflix Drive to Survive has been a huge success for us in Formula One. Netflix have all that data. Um, and they've got a very good idea of the sort of viewing habits of people that are watching Drive to Survive and other stuff. Um, but we don't have sight of that data. So I, I think, yes, ticket. Da- and I think that's where it comes back to Laura's point on ticket data, because for rights holders, that is that first direct understanding of who your fans are. Social media you know, is the next piece. And, and again, you know, really nice point that was touched in that podcast about the fact that we always talk in numbers around platforms. That The likelihood is there is a crossover. Um, they're not all unique people. Um, and then that has helped. So, you know, we have a good idea in F1 based on social media and then also our, our broadcasters, um, the pay TV in particular. And I think, you know, when you have the argument over free to wear versus pay TV, one of the upsides of pay TV is they do have a much better understanding of who it is that's watching your product um, and being able to communicate with them. So, you know, if you add all those pieces together, then, yes, we do have a very good idea. Directly communicating with them is a totally different question. Let's look on the supply side for a minute. Just look at governing bodies and organisations who are responsible for this. Um, are we getting to a point where we've got a, a sort of framework for a good one and a bad one? Can we, can we look at a governing body and say, OK, there's a, lot, there's, there's a number of things that a good governing body has in common. And we've got a, a sort of, whether it's board representation, whether it's, as you put out here about the representation of male and female on their own channels is there something that we're sort of we're, we're getting to a or we are at a place where we can look at a governing body and say yeah it's almost a tick box that we can say yes they're do they're moving in the right direction they have a particular culture they've got a particular way of thinking about this subject and we are um that's the that's the route to follow and we can then start we can start to judge others by that criteria I think we've got to be careful and recognise that governing bodies are at different stages in development. Um, and some leagues have been going, you know, 10 years, some of the leagues have been going four years. So we've got to be careful when we start sort of throwing those things out. You know, development takes time. Um, I think the, the, the senior level buy-in, having, one's, having an own, own budget, accountability for failure, professionalising the workforce, um, diversity uh, amongst the workforce, um, collecting data. I mean, we did a, a report um, at the end of last year, our ambition report, which clearly um, has eight, uh, eight themes um, that touch on all these areas. Um, but, uh, and, and football is, is, is obviously leading the way in so many ways. Um, but, uh, you know, each, each sport is at a different level of, of the stage of development. But does it not need, I'm just wondering, uh, you know, the, the nuclear option is to, is, is women's sport safe within the governing body process, you know, or does it just need it to be blown up and starting externally? I think it, I think it's safe. It just, it, but it, it needs, uh, it needs people to listen. Do you know what I mean? I think, I think, you know, again, going back to the athletes, they've got a very clear point of view on what, 
you know, they believe should be happening. And and I think it's just about opening up that conversation and listening to those people. I mean, a lot of what we said in the ambition report as well that, that Tammy referred to was, again, like just looking at diversity as a whole in the organisation, making sure you're listening to people and understanding, you know, why we're not seeing, you know, people we need to see in leadership positions. So it is, it's just, you know, it's a lot to take on, you know, even though we're all massively frustrated uh, that things aren't moving fast enough. As Ebru said to us last week when we interviewed her, she, she's like, I'm not surprised that, you know, that WSL has taken 10 years to get to this point. Whereas I was like really frustrated because I couldn't understand on day one why it was not being taken, you know, uh, it, was on, it wasn't prime time for BBC One. Uh, you know, the, the, the element of patience that does have to come in, um, you know, I think from Tammy and I have, have spent some time recently with with quite a few NGBs who, who came to listen about some of the learnings that we've had around you know, all the things that we've been doing. And they are really open. They really want to to learn. Um, and I think a lot of it in women's sport is about connection and and actually not feeling like you're isolated and doing it on your own, but learning from the other organisations and making sure there's a real open dialogue. So we're not waiting for everybody to catch up. It's more just about, you know, putting, putting it out there and make sure we can learn from each other. And that's what we're doing with the athletes. We are connecting the athletes from across sport together to form a really powerful group. And then they learn from each other when they share their stories. And then they go back to their NGBs and go, actually, you know what hockey are doing is brilliant. Or rowing have, have set up this new diversity inclusion. You know, why aren't we doing that? So so we are, you know, we've always been a convener as an organization at WST. And I think, you know, we will continue to do that, whether it's with the NGBs or with the athletes or whether it's, you know, with media, we try and bring people together so we can speed up the process of people learning from each other and get to where we need to be much, much quicker. But we do have to be patient, even though that's not really in my skill set. <laughs> so I was just thinking about this idea of, of sponsorship that we were just talking about before and just thinking about football. I was just thinking, are we surely we must be at saturation point for sponsorship in football? Like, you know, for the men's side, sorry. <laughs> like, re, you know, when I think last year, I remember getting an email from Liverpool, obviously, you know, as a fan, saying that we just signed Verbier as our winter resort uh, partner. And I was like, wow, we now have a winter resort <laughs> skiing partner. Like, this is not something I would ever have expected. But there's just so many partnerships on the men's side. And, you know, there's only so many first team players and there's only one manager. So so how do they keep offering something of value to, the, you know, the extraordinary range of brands that they've now got in their stable? Whereas on the women's side, you know, there's so much potential. And I honestly believe that's where one part of this growth of 350 you know, million to, to a billion could come from. It's just shifting we all know what a partnership department looks like in a Premier League football club. It's huge. But how many of those people are actually working on the women's side? Probably very little. If if all of that could just be shifted a bit more onto the women's women's side and we could actually, you know, really understand the data, proactively go and sell these sponsorships, understand the value, put that up, surely that would unlock a huge amount of commercial value pretty quickly. But there seems to be some reticence to it and I and I don't understand what that is so zara that's a difficult question and i sense that i'm going to come to you with that what um <laughs> so laura's saying there is a surely there is a ceiling on the men's sponsorship market which then will shift over to the women's do you agree not really no <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I, the reason I don't is just because, um, you know, brands go through cycles. So we've seen betting at its peak, potentially, you know, because as more regulation comes in, betting might be a category that has to go. Therefore, another category is going to start opening up. We know that a lot of tech brands, I mean, TeamViewer and Manu, the latest example, um, but TeamViewer, one of many tech partnerships that are going to come out of Silicon Valley, um, or not team viewer, but, um, you know, I think tech is probably going to be the next big category. I agree with certain clubs have a massive sort of portfolio of brands. And and I can see why Laura, having had her invite to her winter um, resorts, may think that. But, you know, I think there's always there's always new opportunities. And equally, from a licensing point of view, I think as we start to see the, the licensing side can sometimes be where it's misconstrued as well, that actually there's a lot of sponsorship um, sat in some clubs when actually it might just be a licensing deal. So I, I don't think necessarily um, it will be a saturation at one end, therefore tip into women's football. But I do agree with Laura's other points of, um, you know, how many of the, the Premier League and Championship clubs can actually put their hands up and say, we are well resourced and we prioritise our women's um, strategy just as much as our men's. Because, and you know, and, and I think... I've had a comment back to me in a previous role when I've questioned about opportunities with uh, the women's side um, of saying that we're, we're judged on. Um, we've got a target. That's what we're judged on. And it's much quicker to get there with the men's side of it than it is the women's. Um, so, I, it's, yeah, I don't necessarily agree with the saturation, but I do totally agree with everything else Laura just said. OK, let's I'm going to draw this conversation to a sort of we'll point to the end and the. I guess the question, one the final question is the um, whether or not there's a, there's a there's a point in the research talking about the nature of women's sports fandom and saying that there is a there is they're saying that it's sh- more shallow and I just wanted to understand what that meant. Who wants to take that one? Because it says only twenty five percent of those who follow women's sports. Uh, fans do so actively women's sports audiences are also more siloed than those for men's sport more than 40 percent only follow one sport in which women compete in separate competitions from men in contrast three quarters of fans of men's sports follow two or more who's going to just explain that for me um, i mean i could jump in on the, the on both so on the siloed piece you know i actually think i see that as a positive um so it talks about the fact that 40, I think, as you said, Richard, 44% only what um, only follow uh, or regularly compete in one um, sport versus the men's. And I think that's not necessarily a bad thing because actually as a rights holder to that sport, um, that's how you position yourself of, you know, if you have a relationship with us, whether that's brand or broadcaster, you are having a relationship with a, a, um, a set of people that you can't get anywhere else. Whereas in men's sport, because you have the crossover, arguably golf and rugby probably selling quite similar audiences. So I think that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think that the 25% of um, women's uh, sports fans following actively, um, you know, I I think I'm not sure if we actually have the numbers in there in men's sport and probably a question, a follow up question for two circles, because I can't imagine it would be much higher for men's sport. And I just think about the way I consume sport. Um, You know, I I don't know how many anyone has too much time um, to actively follow uh, more than one or two sports or teams anyway. Um, so I, I don't think it's necessary. I think that's more of a reflection of our society that we dip in and out of multiple things on social media 
Um, so I think, I, you know, again, I, I don't see it as a bad thing. I think it's more just an observation to take away and sort of say that's where you have to think about nuggets of content um, and not necessarily to use the cricket as an example again. You know, how are you going to get the next generation to sit and watch um, a one day international, let alone a five day test match? Um, and actually, is the three minute highlights of an ODI more important and valuable to connecting with that generation than the TV broadcast? And I think that's where we start to think about different audiences and the way they consume um, our products. Mm. And it, it does go into visibility, doesn't it? Because it's been it's been hard to be a, a female sports fan, you know, when when it's not really been there to consume. So, you know, I absolutely love netball um, and, you know, have have only. Uh, you know, I've gone from being like a young girl, not being desperate to find netball content and never being able to find it to now almost having so much netball on my pl- sky planner. I can't watch it all because it's like, because I've got the whole of the Super League still to kind of catch up on. And like, what a phenomenal uh, thing that is, you know, that we've, we've now got it. And now I feel like I can be a proper fan of, of netball because I can engage in the teams, the players, I can understand the different tactics that they're playing. You know, I can really, like the analysis is brilliant. Like all of these things just never existed for, before. And it just, you know, I've always loved the sport, but it's it's allowed my love to go much deeper because I can really, really engage in it. And and that, that that's just one sport, but I feel the same about athletics. I feel the same about football. And I can feel the same about other sports if it's given to me. Um, you know, and that's why we all get so engaged with the Olympics is because you sort of, really suddenly getting you know fascinated by show jumping or you know shooting and things that you don't normally see but that you know but when you do see it you do you do like it so so we have got to it's cultural isn't it and and I, I do think this is a sport issue versus a women's sport issue culturally we just need to show a much broader range of different sports because we are a nation of sports lovers but we are continually predominantly fed football um you know on, on, everywhere and and I love football as well, but you know, it's an it's an age old thing. But we just need to show more diverse sport to allow people to really experience and explore different sports. And it's particularly important for for young girls, I think, because they just don't really have a, a concept of of what potential sports could be available to them. So um, hopefully that will change. That is about visibility. You know, it is about visibility of these sports and being able to engage with them on an ongoing basis and not just through international tournaments every four years. And I think the question on that would be, which was in one of the, the toolkits, is about, you know, when rights owners look at their digital assets and clips. I think men's sports got pretty good now at, at how it sort of does that from a media rights point of view. I think women's sports still lagging a little bit behind. And, you know, I think the recent women's six, uh, the current women's six nations is a good example where we continually question, oh, you know, when is it on TV and is it on the right channel? Is it on red button, et cetera? We're so obsessed with the broadcast piece. But actually, how can I watch a bite-sized version of what's happened on my digital, um, you know, on social media? I don't think I can. Um, And that's because there's still this obsession about the TV piece. And yet we know that actually people that are actively following stuff is quite low. So we need to make it easier for people just to casually consume um, women's sport. Mm, Yeah. And the market will lead in that, won't it? In terms of, you know, that the behaviour of the, uh, the audience will drive yeah you know uh, drive that rather than well it will be both right listen it's 
fascinating. Um, Tammy, you sound like you're building a shed in the in the in the background there. But, Apologies uh, for that. Yes, the dog suddenly <laughs> decided to come into the uh, to the room, and now I'm it's okay. its ear to try and keep it quiet. In the in the, <laughs> podca- in the podcast game, we call that authenticity. That's yes. the, that's that's what distinguishes us from uh, professional radio. But um, thank you all. Thank you, uh, Laura. Thank you, Zara. Thank you, Tammy, for coming on. I recommend everyone to look at the report it's a really interesting piece of work and so i just need someone tammy where can they get hold of it if they weren't at the launch this morning e- easiest places to go straight to our website so womenssporttrust.com uh, and there's a link to download on there okay brilliant well thank you very much and uh, recommend everyone doing that we'll follow that up with the uh, on the unofficial partner newsletter i'll give you a, a sort of link into that and in the show notes to the podcast but in the meantime thanks a lot Wow.